Okay, Talk YA now presents Three Dark Crowns, Part 1, by Kendara Blake. K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast, and we just started a new series this week. We are reading Three Dark Crowns. Does it have a series name? Yep. Is that the series name, or does it have a separate one? Oh. <laughs> I'm like, you got the name of the book right. Good job. <laughs> Anyways, it's a quadrology. The fourth <laughs> book is coming out in a few weeks, which is really exciting. And the first book is called Three Dark Crowns by... Kinder Blake. Yes, the series is called Three Dark Crowns. <laughs> okay. I should double check these things before I'm on. I was going to say on camera, but luckily it's not on camera. camera. <laughs> oh my God. Thank God we are not on camera right now. You do not even want to see what I look like right now. Oh my it's goodness. I can't, I can't imagine if we added that in. I'd have to watch my facial expressions and. I'd have to put on a bra. <laughs> you'd see all the times I'm like double checking what I wrote down. And yeah. But anyways, we read up to Starfall Lake which is about 200 pages in, halfway through. Yes. And I'm looking at this series on Goodreads, and there are a lot of short stories that I'm very excited about. Oh, awesome. I bought one book, which has a couple, like, novella-length stories in it. Mm. There aren't any novellas in my library book, but there are three short stories that all came out, like, pretty recently. So I love short stories. They're just, like, such a good way to fill in gaps. Yeah, hopefully it'll give us some more like, world-building history, like, I hope that the short stories aren't... I mean, I love side character stuff, but I almost want more of the history of how we got to this place with these this magic and these three queens and yada, yada, yada. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Kendar Blake. She wrote... She's written a few other books. So she wrote yes. um, Anna Dressed in Blood and Girl of Nightmares. Have you read either of those? No, but I did... I think I told you right before we started, I forgot to look up the author. But now that you're talking about that, I did search her other books and I have not read any of them, but they kind of look good too. I know. I just added them to my want to read list. And she had one other series, right? Anti-Goddess. The Goddess War series. Yeah. Which I have not read that either, but both look really good. So I'm excited. I love when we like read books from authors and we really like them and then there's more. That's like always a good treat. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's good and bad, but when we, like, discover an author, or we're not really the discoverers, we're still following, like, trends and stuff a little bit, but when it's a first-time author, it's exciting to see what they will come out with, but you, like, can't satisfy that, like, itch to keep reading their stuff. Um, And I also read a little bit about what inspired her to write the Three Dark Crown series, and it's actually really cool. Okay, tell me. So she said she was at a book event and was having a conversation with friends, and one of them is a beekeeper. And she was telling her about how queen bees operate. And basically what happens is the queen lays like three or four eggs that contain queens. And the first queen who hatches murders the other queens and takes over the hive. That is awesome. 
Yeah. And so she was like, oh, it's a good thing people aren't like that. And then she was like, whoa, wait, that could be a really cool story. So it's all based on like the queen bee of a hive and how they like commit, not fratricide, what's, what's, what would be the female equivalent? Um, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> kill their sisters, essentially, to like take over the, the crown. That is interesting. Yeah. So where did the magic part come in? Good question. Um, I don't know. I guess she probably just was building this second world fantasy and, you know, incorporated magic into it. Um, the only other thing I learned was about the uh, different regions in this book. So there's like Wolf Spring, which is the naturalist city, and then the poisoners live in the capital. Um, and she said that the Wolf Spring to her was like inspired by the English countryside with like um, lots of farms and like lots of okay. water. And then she said the capital where the poisoners live um, felt like a more urban developed region and so she kind of compared it to france or russia and that's like the type of architecture she view she like envisions Hmm. and then the elementals were um by the coast so she kind of envisioned it as like a a coastal city with like a city center and then lots of arts and vendors and craftspeople and artisans so i just thought that was cool to like visualize the different uh three regions that we have and again just to clarify and i got this partially off of the map and partially Mm -hmm. off of the story, but it's all one island, right? So there's like the mainland and then these are three parts of the same island? Yes. Okay. The map is really pretty. Do you have one in your It's gorgeous. Yeah, I really like it too. And I love maps of all kinds. Like every time a book has a map, I sit there and stare at it for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. I need to remember it's there. I should have gone back when uh, they were referencing some of the cities just to keep it square in my mind. But So. So. Let's talk about the three sisters. Which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, Catherine. Okay. She's the poisoner. Or the... She's the one we meet first. Poisoner wannabe. Yep. So, okay. Let's actually take a step back. So, we know that every generation or whatever, there's three triplets, three babies born, three queens born, and they each identify with, like, a different magical ability, but they're not always these same three. Right. Which I thought was interesting. When I first started reading, I thought we'd always have an elemental, a poisoner, and a naturalist. But we could have one of the other... War gifts. The war gift and the uh, the one that makes you crazy. Oh, the sight. The sight. Yeah. And we also found out that occasionally there will be more than three babies. And if a fourth one is born, it's like considered a amazing omen and they'll kill the first three. Right. But we don't know, or maybe it's never happened, where we've had less than three babies. Yeah, that's right. never happened. Okay. So this year we have, yeah, the poisoner who's Catherine. And her mother and grandmother were both poisoners as well. Yeah. And the poisoners have ruled the city for a very long time. Yeah. So they're super powerful. But they do not want to give up the power that they have acquired. Right. Because they said that um, whoever, whichever queen sits on the throne, the other. Like, if, if a poisoner sits on the throne, the other poisoners in the kingdom become more powerful. And if an elemental sits on the throne, the other elementals in the islands become more powerful. So, like, you want your power to be represented as queen, essentially. So, another question for you. Mm-hmm. So, it, once one of them becomes queen, yeah. do they go to the mainland and then the council just rules the island and then the island does their own thing until the next set of triplets is born? 
No. Or is the queen on the island? The queen is on the island. She goes to the capital. And then once she has the three triplets, then she leaves the island and goes to the mainland with um, the king consort. And then the council rules until the three siblings come of age. Okay, so she leaves after she gives birth. Mm -hmm. And she rules for, like, however long she lives before having children. So, like, I think they said the last one, she ruled for, like, 13 years after she was crowned and then before she had children. And it seems like she's crowned at, like, 18 because at 16 they can start killing each other Mm -hmm. and then a year later one of them is the winner and then a year later they're crowned, right? Something like that, yeah. I know it's pretty young. Okay. So, we have Queen Catherine, (laughs) the poisoner who's not very good at poisoning. (laughs) No, very good at poisoning, not very good at resisting poison, which which honestly seems, like, unfortunate but okay in the sense if she's good at poisoning, isn't that all you really need to do to kill your sisters? Because it's not like they're going to try and poison you very, especially if they believe that you can resist it. True, but I also think that the your ability to resist poison is seen as a sign of your strength like if you think about it anyone can poison anyone yeah but your the ability to like ingest food that's been laced with poison is like representative of the strength of their gift yes and she unfortunately kind of ruined it for herself when she threw up at her party and revealed that she couldn't (laughs) maintain keep the poison in but assuming the sisters never find (laughs) out i still feel like as far as I'm trying to kill you, at least she can do the poisoning. Yeah, I agree. But I just, <laughs> I honestly love that scene where she had to, like, prove how much food that she could eat that was poisoned, and she just, like, vomits everywhere. Yeah. I felt so bad for her, but at the same time, I was like, that would be such a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she's, like, so, she's been, like, literally practicing her whole life to be able to, like, survive that ceremony (laughs) yeah they spent years like slowly poisoning her to try and like build up her tolerance or whatever and improve her gift like the poor thing and she just like completely humiliates herself and i I felt so bad for her but also it was just kind of like the look on the nobles faces just like made me laugh yeah well that's interesting i like how with her, we saw more of, like, the traditions and the the ritual involved. Like, it's kind of mm-hmm. cool from a world-building standpoint and stuff to see that play out. So I'm very curious to see what happens for, like, the official stuff. Because it didn't really feel like um, her sisters are Arsenal. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Or Mirabella, I guess we didn't really see what her ceremony looked like as much. Well, I guess hers had some tradition with the demonstration and stuff. But I sort of yeah. felt like... Arsenault didn't really have as much ritual involved in her 16th birthday. I agree. And we, I mean, the whole world building is very ritualized. Like, it starts out with them talking about how um, Beltane, I think, is what it's called, which is, like, the start of all of this. And first they have the disembarking where suitors are presented to the three queens, and they have a quickening ceremony where the queens demonstrate their gift. And then after Beltane's over, that's when they have a year to kill each other. So this is like the start of this whole ceremony. Celebration. Celebration year involving um, like the presentation of the queens and their assassinations, really. And again, it's interesting to look at the politics because we're introduced to Catherine first and you definitely get the sense that the poisoners enjoy being in charge, don't want to give that up, etc., 
Then we go to the naturalists, and they kind of mm-hmm. seem indifferent or maybe even like hostile. Yeah. Yeah, that little girl was throwing stones at her. And I, I couldn't tell how much of that was because she had a weak gift and how much of that was, like, you would think even if she had a weak gift that you'd want the power for yourself, so you'd want to her to win somehow. Like, mm-hmm. you'd think everyone would be trying to help her, kind of. Right, right. <laughs> and then on the the other side, we have Mirabella, who's... An elemental. Like, the priestesses seem politically minded and like they're trying to leverage her strength to gain power for themselves but the rest of the town and like the family doesn't necessarily seem super I don't know I kind of was surprised that there I didn't feel like there were as many factions involved as I expected given there were like these three regions and these three queens and well it seemed to me that um no one really spoke about Arsenal no one really gave her the time of day or considered her yeah and Catherine was known for having a weak gift as well. Um, but it seemed to me like everyone, like everyone on the island was pretty much united in the idea that they thought Mirabella was going to win, even if maybe they don't want her to. But everyone talks about how beautiful she is and how strong her gift is. And, oh, we've never seen such a talented elemental. Um, and then it, the pre- the priestesses all back her, which, like, the temple is supposed to be mm-hmm. neutral. Mm-hmm. And she has, like, this very public approval of the temples kind of like siding with her so it seems like she's the favorite right now and but so the priestesses in the temple have like sided with her and seem to be trying to leverage that relationship for power but you would Mm -hmm. think that considering what a strong front runner she is that there would be more people trying to like win her favor or influence her or yeah I don't know it kind of felt like she had this really isolated life outside of like her couple of close people yeah that's a good point I mean maybe no I was gonna say maybe it has something to do with her gift like so she can control all the elements right so like Mm -hmm. we haven't really seen her do all that much but I'm wondering if people are just like nervous about how strong her gift is (laughs) yeah that's fair and it sounds like when she first left her sisters she was a very angry and emotional young child so maybe she pushed off a lot of potential friends possible (laughs) But yeah, I would be backing her, too. If everyone else thought that she was going to win, I'd be like, how do we get in her favor, and what can she do for me? Yeah. But, like, also you'd think you'd want to protect your own queen, even if you don't think she's going to win. Like, it seems wrong Again, to there's me. something in it for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, wait. Who's your favorite sister so far? I wanted to ask you that. Uh, I don't know. So, it's not Arsenault, because I feel like we know her the least. Oh, really? I'm going to say she's my favorite. Really? Yeah. I feel like every time we're over with her, we're, like, talking about Jules way more. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> She's a little overshadowed by her friend. But I don't know. At first, I would have said Catherine, but now I think it's Mirabella. But not because – but in part because she's, like, the one who's having these memories and, like, doesn't seem to want to kill her sisters. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm really curious to see how that plays out, if she's able to, like, reach either or both of them and – like forge some kind of alliance or anything I think I just I like remember when we first started I was like I wonder if they were friends at all at first and it seems like she's the only one who has any memory of them Mm -hmm. being friends but they were they were six when they were taken apart or taken away from each other yeah which is kind of old yeah I feel like you would have some memories but maybe not if from age six till the rest of time everyone's just telling you like I mean like you know you have to kill your sisters and they're gonna try and kill you like it's so true interesting to think about like 
growing up with that message probably 24-7, like preparing your whole life for it and hearing all these ru- the rumor mill more than actually interacting with them, and it could be easy to, to forget, I guess. I and she also keeps having dreams about her sisters, so it's like even if maybe she's trying to forget them, like she keeps having horrible dreams where she's like cutting them up with scissors or, mm-hmm. you know, killing them in awful ways. Um, so it's like she, I think, has been thinking about what she has to do for for a lot longer and since everyone thinks she's gonna win like it it, i think it's very different to be thinking like oh i'm probably gonna be killed versus i think i'm gonna be the one killing them yeah to think of yourself as a murderer instead of a victim kind of thing totally that's fair and i also so i thought it was interesting when we first started i thought because we were getting Catherine's perspective that like we would get that the whole time and she would be sort of the one we were rooting for Mm -hmm. but i like how it's shifting all between the three of them, and I'm really curious because I would, again, there's four books in the series, but I'm assuming that by the end of the first book, at least one, if not two of them, are dead, if I had to guess. Well, okay, I disagree because I really liked how they hinted that there are, that there have been a few quote-unquote white-handed queens who ascended the throne without killing their sisters. But the sisters still died. Yeah, I mean, in that case, it was, like, the fourth blue queen who was the fourth baby. And then any queens, I guess any queens born with a sight gift, they say are prone to madness and are killed. Mm-hmm. But I still think, like, just throwing out that idea of a white-handed queen who ascends a throne without bloodying her hands, essentially, I feel like they wouldn't have thrown that out unless it was possible for Mirabella to be a white-handed queen and to not kill her sisters. So I don't disagree that there's a chance that the queens don't die at each other's hand, but I would be shocked if all three are alive at the end of the book. I could okay. see, because, um, who is it? Uh, the, the mean priestess lady. Luca and Rio? Yeah, Rio seems to be trying to plant this idea that like the townspeople can turn against the two weaker queens yep. and kill them on Mirabella's behalf and I could see even if that doesn't even if it's not 100% successful I could see one of the either Catherine or really any of the three of them once this idea gets out dying at someone's hand even if it's not the sister's hand yeah that's a good point I think the priestesses have a lot to lose right if Mirabella Mm -hmm. doesn't get crowns like they've backed her and it'll look bad if she doesn't win Mm -hmm. um so I think it's possible that Rios or it's Rio, right? Yeah, Rio, or probably not Luca. Luca seems pretty trustworthy, but Rio would try and make it, what, she, what does she call it, a sacrificial year yep. where mm-hmm. the villagers rise up and kill them. So, yeah, I think it's possible that they'll try. I don't know if the priestesses will succeed. So I'm going to bet that they, all three sisters, live. I'm going to bet that only... Well, I I really think at least one has to die by the end of this book. And I kind of think two have to die or be, maybe, maybe (laughs) like they're believed dead. Like they managed to get off the island. But like, I don't think we can, I think at the end of this book, we're going to have one clear queen and at least the general population will believe the other two are dead. Oh, that'd be interesting. Okay. Okay. And it's interesting now because we're seeing some cross-pollination of the groups, right? Mostly between the boys, or through the boys. Yeah. So, okay, let's back up. Yes. I really liked liked Arsenault. She was my favorite because 
Um, I feel like every time we were in her chapters, I just really enjoyed being there. Mm -hmm. And I love, like, the whole naturalist thing where they can make plants grow and they have animal familiars. And, like, her friend Jules has this really cool cougar. So the background, though, with Arsenault is that when she was a child, um, her friends Jules and Joseph tried to help her escape. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And... I'm guessing they wanted to escape to the mainland so that um, Arsena wouldn't be killed because I think maybe they realized she had a weak gift. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were caught and Joseph was banished. But he's recently returned and he's brought a friend with him, his foster brother, Billy, who's like (laughs) a suitor. Um, And we learned that Joseph was in love with Jules. And vice versa. Yep. Still is. Yeah. He, like, gives her, what does he give her, that ring? Yep. <laughs> I love how he's, he's she's, like, confused because he's, like, on the mainland it means I want to marry you. And she's, right. like, so why are you giving it to me? Is it, like, a mainland thing or an island thing? Or <laughs> She's, like, well, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> that was so dumb. That was so silly. <laughs> that was so, like, teenager-y, though, which I like. Uh, yeah. Um, but then Joseph, like, goes on a little trip and... Yeah. Oh, well, no. Mirabella runs away because she's like, I can't. I don't do want to kill my sisters. Yeah. I'm done with this whole thing. Bye. And I thought that was crazy that, like, she happens to see Joseph's ship and it's, like, caught in the middle of a storm and she, like, saves him Little Mermaid style mm-hmm. from drowning. And then he, like, wakes up in her arms and they just, like, immediately have sex. Yeah, that was a little weird. <laughs> like, I would have bought the, like connection from someone saving your life so I guess my question for you is is this somehow related to the magic that Arsenault dabbled in and like threw into the fire because it almost felt like it wasn't just a chance happening because he is still in love with Jules he you know has been away for years and resisted the urge to pursue any other relationship yes I get that almost dying would be traumatic but it's also, it wasn't a one-time thing. Like, after he then, like, really came to and realized everything, they, like, continued their little romance in the woods for a few days. That's a really good point, because I forgot, was it Magical who makes Arsenal use the low magic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she makes her use low magic to try and bind Jules and Joseph together. Correct. But then Arsenault's like, no, I'm not using low magic. It always comes with a risk. It's for the desperate. And she, like throws it into the fire so maybe throwing that charm into the fire did something to joseph and i have all these mixed feelings because i want joseph and like i like them as a couple and they've liked each other for so long but i also kind of feel bad for mirabella if you i mean you know like she didn't do anything wrong because she didn't know and you know and he was encouraging her like it was it seemed like a mutual thing i don't know i just like and now i'm like don't want to hate joseph but i'm kind of mad at him I'm a little mad at Joseph, too, but I like the idea that maybe it was a spell or something, and that's... Yeah. Because even... But then, like... Because, okay, it's one thing to be like, I wake up, I almost died, I'm disoriented, and they have sex. But yeah. then, like, they keep doing it. That's what I mean. Yeah. If it was the one-time <laughs> thing, I'd be... And he, like... Because I, I thought that's what was going to happen, because he told her there was a girl back home, didn't he? Yeah. Or something, like... Like, so I thought that, and she kind of was like, oh, maybe he regrets it. But then they, like, continued the relationship. And that's where I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. Because, the, yeah, the one-time thing, I was sort of like, okay, he's disoriented. Mm-hmm. He maybe thinks it's an angel or he doesn't, you know, he's like, whatever. Like, sure. whatever. But 
But yeah. But then they keep doing it. And then Mirabella runs into Arsenault and she's horrified because she's like, oh my gosh, this is the girl you were talking about. Jules is her friends. Like she basically is like, oh my God, you know my sister. Um, And that was sad because I think Mirabella wanted to talk to Arsenault and like explain to her what was going on. But she's like immediately taken away by Rio and mm-hmm. I think it leaves with Arsenault thinking that Mirabella came to kill her. Yep. So there's not really any trust. Yeah, she doesn't have a chance to explain. But you would think, because Joseph has now spent a decent amount of time with Mirabella and seems to like her in yeah. <laughs> a few ways, um, that, like, now that, and he's, like, best friends with Arsenault, like, I'm kind of hoping that that helps. And then on the flip side, Arsenault's suitor, Billy, has na- is now going to visit Catherine, right? Yes. So, like, it seemed like Arsenault and Billy are now at least good friends and friendly. So maybe, I'm, like, kind of hoping that these boys can help bridge some of the, we haven't seen each other, we just want to kill each other. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see the other suitors that come, too. Because we just have one now, and there's going to be, like, a bunch presented to the queen. So I feel like it's going to be, like, love quadrangles and love hexagons. Like, there's going to be so many love angles. Okay. (laughs) So, another question, though. Does the king consort have to come from the mainland? Like, is Billy eligible because he's not from the island? And is Peter and Joseph, like, not even considerations because they live there? Or is that just a coincidence that Billy's from the mainland and it could be anybody? Good question. I know people from the mainland do not have gifts, Mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense if you, like, you wouldn't want to pair an elemental queen with, like, a naturalist king consort, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and it seems like the queens are the ones who, like, it's a very matriarchal society. Like, the queens are the ones who mm-hmm. hold the power, literally. So yeah. I think it would make sense to assume that all suitors come from the mainland and are giftless. Because wouldn't you also think that, okay, so Peter is helping Catherine oh, yeah. become more appealing to other men, but they also seem to be developing an actual attraction to each other. Sure do. But they haven't even hinted or joked about them possibly ending up together. Right. Which is why I was thinking that he was, like, ineligible for whatever reason. I think so. I mean, also, isn't Peter Natalia's nephew? Nephew. Okay, yeah. Yeah. But that's... She's not She's not related, related. To, yeah. She's yeah. just, like, her foster mother, but... I think you're right. I think that's why he's not eligible. But I think he's he's secretly falling in love with her. Ooh. Okay, and then what I was thinking about was, like, this is so interesting and cool, but I was also thinking, this happens every generation. Like, what are the odds that no queen has ever fallen in love or had a romantic relationship with someone that they grew up with by the age of 16? Like, that seems slim. And then similarly, all the three sisters... So it kind of seems like uh, Mirabella is odd for not wanting to kill her sisters. Yes. Right? Like, that's unusual. But it's also like, if there's three people every generation and they spend the first six years together, like, what are the odds that this hasn't happened before? Or like, yeah. But, but maybe it's always been the weaker, like, maybe it's unique because we have two weak ones and one strong one and the strong one is the one who doesn't, like, maybe it is. And also, like, it seems like the girls have been... Like, they've been very closely monitored their whole lives. Like, they have Mm -hmm. a variety of keepers who are keeping tabs on them and raising them the way they think they should be raised. Like, I would think that includes, like, limiting your contact with men and, um, you know, preparing you in all ways to be queen. And that involves, you know, who you go out with. 
Yeah, that's fair. But again, they're 16-year-old girls, yeah. so it could be, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Ooh, I'm, I'm really enjoying the book so far, I have to say. I think it's, like, there's three unique groups, there's three unique daughters. I really like the world building. I love the concept. I'm, mm-hmm. like, super excited to see where it goes. I agree, and I am, I'm totally on board right now, but I am also excited curious to see where it goes because I also feel like it could like go the wrong way for me so Mm -hmm, I like mm -hmm. hope that we keep getting more like background and understanding of the magic and the politics involved Mm -hmm. and that that doesn't get like brushed over now that we've sort of established the baseline yeah no that's a good point I hope it doesn't turn into just like a love story like I want it to be political Mm -hmm. as well and I don't really even though I predicted that only one sister will be there at the end I love the sibling relationship thing so that's why I also said maybe just one of the sisters dies okay how Mm -hmm. about this Mirabella and Arsenault somehow become friends or like agree to help each other but then Catherine doesn't know about this obviously and she kills one of them and then no I haven't thought this through no there's a big fight like I kind of want maybe one of them to die but then like somehow there's two left but then there's like this conflict because one of them killed the one that died or I don't know I'm just I I like the I want to see the sibling relationship flushed out more agreed um, I also really want Arsenault to get an animal familiar. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel bad she doesn't have okay, one. Okay, here's my other thought. So what if, <laughs> I don't know how they figure out which gift each queen has, but what if they like messed up and you know how Catherine was really close to that one snake? What if Catherine oh was God. supposed to be the naturalist? Wait, Catherine is the naturalist. And what if Arsenault like actually has a strong <laughs> resistance to poison but has never been tested? Like what if they're both really strong but they just got like put in the wrong place? That's what I was thinking when Catherine was really close to the snake. Oh my God, that would have been so, that's a really clever idea. <laughs> but again, I don't know how the <laughs> testing works or how they know. So I don't know. And I'm also curious, I hope we kind of see or get more understanding of how the mainland and the island interact, because it sounds like there really is, like, some kind of magic involved, even with getting to or from the island, right? So Billy says he, like, went into the mist the way he'd always gone, and it was, like, a really quick journey to get to the island. Mm -hmm. And when Joseph, Jules, and Arsenault were trying to escape, they talked about how, like, the island wouldn't let them go. Mm. And so I'm really curious to see more of that. And like you said, the mainland doesn't have any magic. So I don't. I just kind of want to see that relationship more too. Oh yeah, that's that'd be interesting. Um, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen to Mirabella now that she was taken back by Rio because those priestesses are brutal. Yep. They essentially like sacrificed a young girl as like a gift for Mirabella. Like that's how serious they are about showing their support. So now I'm just like. Now that she ran away and tried to ruin everything, like, what's going to happen now? I think they're going to lock her in a dungeon and try and get the people to kill her sisters for her. Yeah. Because they're not going to hurt her, you know? Even, like, when Arsenault... They can't afford to. Yeah. Yeah. But even, like, when Arsenault ran away, like, she wasn't punished. Like, her aunt took Mm -hmm. up her punishment as, like, being a servant to the queens, but she was not touched. Also, okay, Mirabella is an amazing magical power controlling all the elements person. It seems like even if you wanted to control her, that would be really difficult. Yeah. She could just like call down lightning and be like, boom, bye. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just very, I'm interested in like how they're going to get her to kill against her will or how they're going to contain her so they can, the priestesses can kill her sisters instead. I think that, that Rio or whatever her name is, is going to, 
plant that rumor that she's already mentioned out and about and I think they're gonna lock up Mirabella somehow or keep Mm -hmm. her like under extra extra supervision yeah yeah what did you research this week Okay, so it's kind of off of what you were talking about with Arsenault and the familiar thing. So I thought that was a really cool part of the, like, kind of fun part of the book, too, is we find out that all the naturalists, like, call out and eventually get a familiar, and it could be anything from a rooster to a mountain lion. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I take the mountain lion. (laughs) And uh, so I was kind of looking up things about how people came about having pets at all, and especially people having exotic pets and but I, I kind of read some like terrible stories about exotic pets oh like domesticating animals yeah, it's like it's mm. probably not the best idea if you were if you were thinking about getting a tiger or something oh god no so okay did you ever watch the show psych no it's about this like really observant guy who pretends to be a psychic and like solves crimes and it's hilarious Ooh. um but I remember there was this one episode where he there was something about tiger how there's more tigers in texas than there are in the wild elsewhere in the world what in texas yeah isn't that crazy because people want to have tigers in cages i guess the rules in texas are a little bit more forgiving than elsewhere or something but they said <laughs> uh it's estimated that over five thousand tigers reside in u.s homes what? that's more in captivity than there are in the wild that's crazy and this article was from Six months ago. And it says, Born Free USA has documented over 2,000 attacks, incidents, and escapes involving exotic pets since 1990. And really, like, part of the problem is a lot of people will buy these pets when they're little. Yep. And they think, like, oh, if I raise them, you know, they'll be fine. But it's actually really hard to, A, like, have the space and meet the dietary needs and all that stuff of a pet like this. So a lot of times they'll, like, be malnourished and get sick. Um, and then also they get really, really big and eat a lot of food, some of them. And then when they reach sexual maturity, they usually are like locked up somewhere where they don't have the kind of mental stimulation they need or physical exercise they need. And they grow frustrated and may become bored and like all different kinds of mental distress and they lash out in different ways. Yeah. So it's like a lot of people think that they're like saving these animals from the wild or whatever, but really it's. no not good yeah well that's like what just happened in chicago there was an alligator in the humboldt park reservoir did you Mm -hmm. hear about that yeah park snap which is like very close to my house chance Mm -hmm. the snapper yeah or something like that yeah (laughs) because some idiot like bought an alligator and then when it got too big was just like whoops we'll put it in this pond and then there was an alligator in the pond in chicago Yeah, so that's what else I was reading. Like, they say, you know, if they can't handle the animals, a lot of people just, like, let them, they're like, oh, they're a wild animal, I'll just let them loose. But, like, you can't do that in a residential area or a city. Or if these pets really have been raised since they were kids, they, you know, they don't know how to survive for themselves. Do you follow um, Juniper Fox on Instagram? I do not. Okay, you should definitely follow Juniper Fox. It's um, an Instagram account by this woman who takes in wild animals and like either rehabilitates them to release them into the wild or if they can't be rehabilitated a lot of times she just um, keeps them on her land Mm -hmm. um and she has three foxes who were saved from fur farms and it's juniper fig and the baby is elmwood 
And let me just tell you, this Instagram account gives me so much joy because <laughs> it's just these adorable foxes in their lives with this amazing woman who, like, I don't know how she does what she does because she has so many animals and she takes such good care of them. And, like, her whole blog is about, like, I rescue these animals from a farm. They cannot be, or from a fur farm, they cannot be released in the wild. Like, it is very hard to take care of them. So mm-hmm. she basically is, like, saying, you know, don't just take animals out of the wild and think you can have them as pets because they're they're really not pets. Like, yeah. she's very yeah. honest they're about that. They're still wild animals. Yeah. Yeah. But have you heard, because you like foxes, have you heard of the Finnick fox? Yes. Yes. And I know you can have them in Chicago. <laughs> you can? Oh, I didn't know that specifically. But, yeah, they're, like, one of the few, like, foxes in general are not good animals to keep as pets. But the Finnick fox is, like, smaller than a cat you can like train it to use a litter box they're really playful and they don't pose a threat to public safety so actually maybe you cannot have one in chicago i know we researched if we could get one because we were like oh we really want one but then we were reading about them and they just i don't think they make good pets (laughs) yeah i don't know if good pet would be the right thing to say and really i wouldn't advise for any of our listeners to get any of these exotic pets do you want to hear some horrifying tales of exotic pet ownership gone wrong i sure do are you sure we don't have to no i do (laughs) okay um so there there's this chimp named travis who was he was like in tv commercials he was in like coca-cola and old navy ads and his owner was this woman named sandra harold and in 2009 she noticed that he was kind of acting a little bit odd so she gave him a xanax which i'm not sure why she did that And later on, that same day, I guess he got out of his enclosure, so she called her friend Charla Nash to help her bring the chimp back in, and the chimp brutally attacked Charla and literally ripped her face off. I did hear about this. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And she eventually, she survived, so that's good, but she, like, had to drink her meals through a straw where her mouth used to be. She lost both her hands, her nose, eyes, and lips. Oh, my God. And it was just terrible. So awful. Oh, my God. I know, right? And you you know... What happened to the chimp? I assume that the chimp was put down, but I didn't... It didn't actually say that in this. And you you know about Siegfried and Roy, right? Oh, yes. Did I tell you I went to their show? Before that happened. Really? No, you didn't. I wasn't at the show that where it happened, but I went to see them. God, I must have been like 13 years old. Um, And I was like obsessed with the show and obsessed with them and their tigers. And I had like a coffee mug and like posters with them on it. I like loved them. And then that happened and it was like, oh my God, I was so, so upset. (laughs) Yeah. So those who somehow missed the news back in 2003... Basically, Roy was attacked by a 600-pound white tiger during in the middle of a show on his 59th birthday, and it was like a routine that they'd done a million times, and the animal just like stopped doing the routine and obeying orders and attacked him and dragged him off stage by his throat, and he suffered a stroke after the attack, and he had a couple of major surgeries, and again, luckily, he survived, but it could have been even worse. And they did say that... um I mean, they obviously, like, defended that tiger, mm-hmm. even though it attacked him. They were, like, very adamant about, like, we don't want him put down, like, we don't want him harmed. And they actually said, like, one of the theories of why the tiger acted the way he did was 
some people say that Roy actually had was having a stroke on stage and the tiger was could responding, sense could sense it, and was trying to get him off stage. That's like a theory of why he attacked. And again, you can't you can't be mad at wild animals for being wild animals. Oh my God, you know no. what I mean? Like I respect that they didn't blame the tiger, but I'm also like it's also like, well, yeah, but maybe the tiger should, I, you know, it's kind of... Maybe you shouldn't have been on stage, yeah. 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 Like, if you, if you want to rehabilitate them, that's one thing, that's great, but, like, do they need to be on stage under bright lights in front of a loud crowd? Absolutely not. And, like, the risk of, you know, little Marissa might have been in the crowd and, you know, whatever, but... Would have changed my, <laughs> my feelings about that show for sure. <laughs> okay, this one is interesting. I had not heard about this one before. So, there was this woman, Kathy Ake who she had a collection of exotic pets and she was showing them on the local news and one of them was her 1800 pound camel polo and during the shoot the camel suddenly attacked her and it knocked her on the ground and laid on top of her so oh no again this is a giant heavy animal so it actually crushed her to death in front (gasps) of the reporters whoa yeah. Why did it lay on her? That's such an interesting, like, is that how camels attack other animals? I don't know. I don't know how. I didn't even know. Cam- I Like, honestly, if you told me someone got in a camel attack, I don't even know what I would imagine. <laughs> no. Like, I don't, they don't strike me as. Particularly And there's dangerous. a camel, like, in the neighborhood I grew up in. Yeah, I don't know. But... Oh my God, that's horrifying. Oh. Yeah. And then there, there's some, uh, lots of, like, uh, python stories. Yeah. So one of the saddest ones is that two-year-old girl in Florida who her family had an eight-foot python and it, she died of asphyxiation. She was squeezed and bitten by the python. Oh, my God. And I guess she was just in her crib and the <gasps> python somehow got out of its enclosure, entered her room, and her family didn't realize until after she had died. And Could you imagine? Both her mother and the live-in boyfriend whose snake it was were charged with third-degree murder and manslaughter. Whoa. After she died. Which, I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe don't have an animal that can kill your two-year-old in the house. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's it, All this stuff is obviously multi-layered in reality, but... Yeah, like, what do you even do with a python that big besides just look at it? I don't know. And that's part of what some of these articles were saying. It's like, once they get to a certain size, you can't... Like, most people don't have enough space to really sure. keep these animals in, in a way that is good for them, you know? I know there was a guy in Pittsburgh who had a pet wolf that mauled him. Yeah, I heard about a bear. This woman was feeding her bear, what? and the bear attacked her in front of her two children. And and again, a lot of these people raised these animals from, like... Babies. Yeah, yeah, when they were very young. And it's, you know, it's hard to blame the animal because... No, it's doing what, even if you raise it from a baby, like, millions of years of instinct can't be trained out of you. Yeah. And it shouldn't be, really, I think, in a lot of ways. Right. Like, zoos are one thing, and even that has, you know, pros and cons, I think. But, like, mm-hmm. living in the house with a two-year-old is a whole different ball game. Right. So then, I needed a happy story. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. would you like to hear about the man who invented the aquarium? Yeah. The liquid zoo? Yeah, so his name was Philip Henry Gose, or Gosey, I don't know for sure how to pronounce his name, and he was basically, like, always interested in sea life. He was born in 1810, so this is, like, the early 1800s, and he had an aunt who, every time he, like, found something kind of interesting or beautiful or 
strange he'd like run and show his aunt and she basically said like why don't you try to keep this alive in some water so he eventually coined the term aquarium to describe the glass enclosures that he made for marine life and he in 1853 he did his first like super serious attempt and did like a public aquarium at the Regent's Park Zoological Gardens, which is now the London Zoo. Mm -hmm. And he stocked a large glass aquarium with around 200 specimens of marine animals and plants. And it was such a popular attraction that they ended up giving him more and more aquariums to fill. And so he wrote this book in 1854 called The Aquarium, An Unveiling of the Wonders of the Deep Sea, which introduced a lot of other people into this idea of like starting their own aquariums. And he worked with uh, this chemist named Robert Warrington, and together they developed the aquarium principle, which is this idea of um, plants in the aquarium, or like figuring out how plants in an aquarium can produce enough oxygen for animals Mm. to live. So before that, like in his first early attempts, he said he had three pints of seawater with marine plants and animals in a show glass window that was 10 inches deep by five and a half inches wide. And he would just refresh the water periodically, and that's how he kept that going for, I guess, around two months. But then, like, they kind of developed this thing a little bit more. And then aquariums really took off, and it was kind of... He wrote a sequel the next year, and it was kind of fun. I was just imagining, like, how cool would it be to live back then, and, like, how exciting would it be to, like, go to his exhibit and see all these creatures for the first time? Because it's not like they had pictures or, like... You know, the internet where they could just, like, look up what a jellyfish looks like. (laughs) I know. And it wasn't like everyone could go snorkeling every weekend. You know, like, I mean, I bet it was so cool. I still think they're so cool. So I can't even imagine if it was, like, literally brand new the first time ever. Yeah. Um, I hope they were, like, the animals were well cared for. Yeah. I mean, I'm I think he cared about the animals I don't know how developed their understanding of everything was so I didn't I didn't read anything bad about it but I'm sure we've come a long way in terms of what we know and understand about things but he I mean like he was a scientist but he wasn't a like he wasn't one of those who like did you know how like we've read about some scientists who kind of push the uh envelope in bad ways about testing things out on living creatures but he wasn't like that Yeah, it seemed like he genuinely cared about the animals and was, like, putting them on display, not to, like, make money, but because he was fascinated by them. Yeah, his son described him as, um, when he was talking about his work habits, he said, he was up at five or six in the morning and often spent eight or nine hours in uninterrupted work at the microscope, merely breaking through it so far as to come down from his study with knitted and abstracted brows to swallow a hasty meal in silence. So he was just one of those, like, very intellectual people who was fascinated by sea life. So cool. And was able to share that with others. And that's the cool thing about things like aquariums and zoos is they do allow people to experience things they wouldn't otherwise and learn about, like... Conservation. Conservation. Mm -hmm. And there's other animals out there. And you can learn a lot, you know, good things from a, a zoo or aquarium that meets the standards of a good zero aquarium. Totally. Oh, I love that. <sighs> good to end on a happy note. Yeah. If you want a, f- a fish familiar. No, thank you. I don't know. <laughs> what kind of familiar would you get if you could pick? Ooh. What would, like, my my demon be? Demon be? Mm-hmm. Um, I would like a wolf, because that's my Patronus. Yeah, I love wolves, too. And it's kind of like... A mix between a dog and a, and a wild animal. You know, I mean, yeah. like, you get, like, some of the benefits, but some of it, yeah. Exactly. What about you? 
I don't know. Wolves are my favorite, but to be different. <laughs> yeah. Should we start a pride of wolves? Is that what they're called? A pack. Yeah. Pack of wolves. <laughs> pride is lions, right? Yeah. yeah. Wildcats. Okay. Oh man. <laughs> and that's where I stopped talking for the episode. What did you research? <laughs> um. Okay. So I was really fascinated by Catherine's gifts of poisoning. Um, Always good. And I also was just fascinated with how everyone in her region constantly eats poisoned food. And, yeah. like, it's to the point where, like, they refuse to eat food that's not tainted in some way. That was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of was fascinated by how they were, her keepers were constantly trying to introduce small poisons to her body to try and, like, have her develop a resistance to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you've seen The Princess Bride, where they have that scene where Wesley is like, I've spent my life developing an immunity to iocane powder, right? Yep. So that practice is actually called mithridicism. Myth- mithridicism? Mithridatism. Okay. And that's the practice of protecting yourself against a poison by gradually... Um, administering non-lethal amounts. Can you do that with anything? So, <laughs> I first I kept researching, like, is this actually possible to do? <laughs> so, they do say that it's not effective against all types of poison. So, okay. they say immunity is only possible with biologically complex type of poisons, which your immune system can respond to. So, so what would be an example of that? So they said an example of that could be um, like alcohol. So like if you if you drink a lot of alcohol, you notice like your tolerance to alcohol builds up, right? So like mm-hmm. when we were in college, probably we had, you know, we were able to tolerate large amounts of alcohol because we had slowly built up a tolerance to it. So like that's an example. Mm-hmm. However, they still say that like whenever you are ingesting these toxins, essentially, you can, like, the toxins build up and build up to a certain point where it can lead to, like, a lethal accumulation of poison. So, like, if you think about alcohol, you can get a a very high tolerance for it, but it still damages Mm -hmm. your liver. And so you can get, like, fatty liver or liver disease um, because it's still, you know being metabolized just because you're not getting the short-term effects doesn't mean it's not accumulating in your body exactly um there's also they do say that um there's a few practical uses of mithridism and um some of it is like with venomous snakes so like if you Hmm. build you can build up a tolerance apparently to um snake venom so that if you get bitten you might not be affected how long does that take like if if I was like, I'm going to go camping and I should probably become immune to a bunch of snake venom just in case, when would I have to start? I wouldn't do it at all, personally. <laughs> I do not recommend trying this at all. Apparently, you can do it with um, arsenic, too. So there's a gene that you can have, but people born with this gene um, have a lower susceptibility to arsenic and they were saying um do you know how they talked about how like rasputin was killed and it took him so 
longed to die, and he he ate all these cakes, like, laced with arsenic, he may have had that that, uh, gene. Huh. So it's also interesting, like, even if it was reliable-ish, you would think if you get the measurement slightly off, it would be really bad, right? Like, and based on weight and your genetic makeup and what else is in your system, probably, and... Yeah, that's why it's, like, very strongly discouraged. Oh, I accidentally did a tablespoon instead of a teaspoon. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, think about, um, like, any kind of drug, like, recreational drugs. Um, You know, a lot of overdoses happen because they're off it for so long and they think they can go back on their normal, quote-unquote, normal dose, and that's how you OD. Hmm. Um, So do you want to hear how Mithridism got its name? Yes, please, because it's a very interesting name. So the word is derived from Mithridates the sixth, who was the king of Pontus, which is uh, in Asia Minor, they say. Um, okay. And he was the son of Mithridates the fifth, who <laughs> was assassinated by poisoning. And it was widely rumored that this king was poisoned by his wife, the queen. So, when her son, Mithridates VI, was growing up, she was queen regent um, until the until he would come of age. And he was also in competition for the throne with his brother. And he began to suspect that his mother was favoring his brother for the crown. Ooh. And so, during his youth, he became very wary of his mother because he thought she had a connection to his father's death and she was favoring his brother. Yeah, I don't blame him, yeah. Oh, totally. And then on top of that, he began to notice that he was having stomach pains right after every meal. And he became really paranoid that his mother was ordering um, small amounts of poison to be added to his food to slowly kill him off. Mm -hmm. So what did he do? He ran away. (laughs) As one does. He, He... Fled into the wild, apparently, and... Let's it... just call him Mirabella. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so while he was living on his own, he began ingesting non-lethal amounts of poisons to try to make himself immune to all poisons. So he was like, my mom tried to poison me. I'm going to show her. I'm going to develop an immunity to all these poisons. Unfortunately, <laughs> he did not meet a very great end. Oh, no. That's why you shouldn't try this at home, folks. <laughs> no, I'm no. So he did build up a high immunity to other poisons. However, the Romans attacked. The, the Romans came in and conquered his kingdom. And he fought against them, but they won. And he, Mithridates, did not want to be shown off as, like, a captured king. So he was going to be, mm-hmm. like paraded around as like, look at this king that we overthrew. Um, And so he decided to kill himself. Unfortunately, (laughs) the best method he could think of to try and kill himself was poison. So (laughs) he drank like a huge dose of poison and just, of course, didn't die because he spent his whole life building up an immunity. (laughs) Um, And so he finally got a close friend to stab him. Oh, my goodness. That Gotta be careful what you wish for. Maybe you'll build up an immunity to poison and you'll really want to poison yourself later. I know. It's just like, it was such an ironic end to his yeah. to his life. Um, and then I was like reading about other types of people who had have practiced this. And I came across something super fascinating. And I know we're running late, so I won't um, 
talk on it too much, but have you ever heard of the Vishakanyas? I don't believe so. Okay, so during the rule of the Mayura king in 320 to 298 BC in India, there was a practice of selecting really beautiful girls and giving them poison in small amounts throughout their entire childhood until they grew up and making them insensitive to poisons. And these girls were hmm. called Vishakanya, which means um, like poison maidens or like poison damsels. And they were used as assassins. Interesting. Yeah, they were used as assassins in ancient India. And they were rumored, it was rumored that their blood and all their bodily fluids were poisonous to other humans. So they were, um, like, they were kind of encouraged to, like, take lovers and, like, seduce them. And then their lovers would die after, after lying with them. That is crazy. It's kind of like a thing of legend and folklore now. Um, but it's yep. in a lot of, like, Hindu mythology texts and um, Sanskrit texts. And I think it's just kind of like a fascinating story. It's a cool concept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always love a good female assassin, too. Yeah, and, like, they, the myth was that um, a Vishakanya could cause instant death with just a single touch. <laughs> um, they say most likely they killed their targets by giving them poison mixed in alcohol or food. Okay, yeah. that they had resistance for. Yep. yep. That would also be tricky, though, especially with baby, like, young, to not overdose them as children. Yeah, and, like, there's the whole um, treating women's sexuality as deadly or something dangerous, which is a whole other, Mm -hmm. you know, segment of that. But I thought it was an interesting story. Yeah. So. Cool. Is it my turn to tell a joke this week? I honestly can't remember whose turn it is, so if you have one. I do have one. Okay, why don't you tell me one? It's so stupid, you're gonna love it. Okay. Um... If you're American when you go into the bathroom and you're American when you come out of the bathroom, what are you while you're in the bathroom? I know this one. We used to tell this one when we were growing up, I think. <laughs> European. <laughs> so dumb. Right? Yes, oh, I right. loved that one growing up. That was like my favorite. My mom hated it. Dumb bathroom joke for you to end this recording on. Oh, that makes me think of my dad for sure. If you have other exotic pet experiences or want to make predictions of which queen will or will not be alive at the end of this book, uh, feel free to reach out to us at mnktalkya at gmail.com or on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. And we're going to finish the book for next week. Sounds good. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.